The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. So grateful for you this morning, grateful to hear your voices. Um, I have, I have really enjoyed our time in the Minor Prophets, by the way. Um, I feel like every week we've been in the Minor Prophets, though, I have wished that we have had multiple weeks in each of these books, and uh, this morning is no exception. Uh, Malachi is a phenomenal book with a lot here, and, and unfortunately, I'm not going to get to spend as much time as I would like to with it this morning, but... Let's not waste any time. Let's jump right in. Would you, if you have your Bibles, would you grab them? Would you turn with me to the book of Malachi? Uh, Malachi, by the way, is the last book in your Old Testament. So if you get to the new, you've gone too far. Um, but while you're getting there, let me paint for us kind of a, a picture so that we know what we're stepping into, okay? Um, Malachi is, is this, this snapshot Okay, God's people had just experienced the unthinkable. Okay, just the unthinkable. They were taken off into captivity. And if you, if you think back to all the prophets, in fact, you hear this similar message. It's turn, it's repent, it's stop, don't go that way, come back, turn back to God. That's the, the message of all the prophets. And yet, um, we read and we see that that warning of the prophets was in fact ignored. And Babylon did come. The unthinkable happened, they were conquered. And so I wanna fast forward now, okay? So that happened, let's fast forward now. And we get to the, to the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you're familiar with those two. Uh, what they did is they led this movement back to the land. And for Ezra and, and Nehemiah, it was more than just a movement back to the land. It was a movement back to God. It was a movement back to his word. And you would think that after all they went through, you would think that after all they'd experienced, you would think that now they would take this seriously and uh, come back to God, know him, and trust him. You'd be wrong. That, that didn't. Unfortunately, that did not happen. And, and yet again, after the temple had been rebuilt, after the walls had been rebuilt, here they are in a similar situation. And this is where we get to Malachi. See, Malachi um, prophesied 100 years after the people had come back. So 100 years after the people had come back, you know, coming back to the city with high hopes that this is going to be it, New Jerusalem here, and then it not being the case at all. Instead, these people were struggling. They were very similar to their people who came before them. And here we are. Uh, this is going to be an important concept for us as we work through Malachi. I want you to think of a window and a mirror. When you look at Malachi through a window, you see a, a people who it's very easy for us to look through the window and say, you're boneheads. That's the theological word for what you see when you look through the window at the book of Malachi. You look through and you see what's happening. You say, how could they do this? How could they 
be that crazy. But today, we're going to see that Malachi doesn't let us look through the window. It invites us to look into a mirror. As we look at Malachi, it is going to be, you're going to see this today, it's going to be very hard for you and I as Christians in 2020, American, San Antonio, however you want to slice the pie, it's going to be very difficult for us to look at Malachi and and not see ourselves in a reflection. It's going to be very difficult for us not to stop. Now, as we look at Malachi, we're looking at a dialogue, not between God and a man, like we saw last week in Habakkuk, but between God and his entire people. We see this dialogue. So for us today, what we're going to hope to do here is we're going to walk through this dialogue and unpack it together as best as we can in the limited amount of time that we have. Um, This is my first time to preach to people in a room Um, I promise I'm not going to take advantage of that and go two hours. I will not, all right? I'm going to be good. I'm going to be, I'm going to be good. Um, But again, we are going to look at this. We're going to see that not only is this a window into their broken lives, it is a way that we can better understand ourselves and see ourselves. So here's my prayer and what it's been all week, that we would not just read God's word, but that God's word would read us this morning. That's my prayer. So, let's get started. Let's start right in the beginning. Would you look with me at verse 2? I have loved you, says the Lord. But you, people, you say, how have you loved us? So if we pause here, God says, I love you. And the response in the flesh is, how? How have you ever shown me that you love me? How could you say that? Do you see all that we're going through? How could you say that you love me when I am going through what I am going through? How can you say, God, that you love me? So if we pause here, have you ever asked God that? So we just pause here. God says, scripture, by the way, very clear, says, God, for, for us in Christ, God loves us with a perfect and unfailing love. The scripture tells us how deep that love is for you, yet, when we face things that we don't understand, when we face things that just seem like everything has come off the rails, how easy is it for us to begin to doubt? How easy is it for us to begin to doubt his love and to begin to doubt his character? How have you loved us, God? Virus, job loss, tension, racial division, fires, hurricanes, sickness, struggle, politics, division, depression, could go on. How, how have you loved us? It's easy for us to sit in this room today, to read Malachi, and to to say, you boneheads, how could you question God's love for you? How could you forget God's love for you? I mean, you're, you're crazy. How? I mean, you were delivered from slavery. God 
parted a sea for you. He rained food from the skies for you. It was conquering enemies. It was blessing after blessing after blessing. How could you ever, how could you ever doubt his love? See, when looking through a window, it's easy for us to, 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 to look at them and to think this. But when we begin to see ourselves, it becomes a little less comfortable becomes a little less comfortable. In fact, the question is no longer, how could you guys have forgotten this? The question then becomes, have we forgotten? Have we forgotten? See, the first part of Malachi, here's what happens. God reveals our, I'm going to call it our suspicious hearts. Where all of a sudden we just click into this, I'm, I, I'm, I'm super suspicious of you, God. How could you say that you love me? Where, what have you done for me lately, God? See, Malachi begins with our doubt. He begins by meeting the people of God in their doubt right where they are. Reminding them of his real and unfailing love. And listen, as, as a child of God, God loves you. I can say this with full confidence through the word of God, that as a child of God, God loves you. No matter what you are facing, no matter what you will face, we're going to talk about this a lot more this morning, God loves you and he does not abandon you. He has not forgotten you. Great is his faithfulness as we just sang. The truth of God's love is that he's going to do exactly what he promises to do every time. Every single time. Now, let's move a layer deeper. Let's go with me to verse 6. Verse 6 says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I, and if I am a master, where is my fear, says, or if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, O priests who despise my name. All right, here we go. We're taking this a level deeper. We're taking this a level deeper. Now what God is going to do is shine a light on their worship. He, he's going to look at the way the people are approaching him and approaching the temple specifically here. According to God's word, God says, you, the people of God, were despising his name. You hear that and you think, what? I mean, that's a huge accusation. How could they be despising the Lord? Well, that's exactly what they ask. They say, but you say, how have we despised your name? And here is how. I want you to listen with me here. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. So let me give you a little bit of context to what's going on here. Um, before Christ came and fulfilled the law perfectly, was the perfect and spotless sacrifice for your sin. Before his atoning work, before Christ, the people of God would offer sacrifices for sin. They would um, uh, fulfill and obey the law of Moses that says, when you sin, here's what you do to atone for that sin. So the people of God would do this. And God's word is very clear here, very clear here, that the sacrifices that you were to make were not to be of the rejects of the flock. They're not to be the blemished ones, the janky ones, the sick ones, the skinny ones, the bald ones, whatever it is, whatever animal we're dealing with here. Um, it's not to be the ones who are kind of the last pick. No, 
God's word is very clear that this sacrifice needed to be a blameless sacrifice. It was to be costly, which would point them to the work of Christ coming, that he would be the spotless and perfect one, would point them ahead to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. But God was clear. This sacrifice needed to be one of the spotless and perfect animals of their flock. It was costly because sin is costly. It's called a sacrifice of praise because it was a sacrifice for these people. But here's what was happening in our text. The people of God, they were not bringing their best. They were not bringing the spotless or the blameless. They were bringing the sick, blemished, broken animals that wouldn't cost them very much. They were bringing, they were going through the motions of the sacrifice, but they had missed the heart of it. And get this, it wasn't just them. It was the priests too. The, the, the priests, so here's what was happening. The people were offering the, the, the janky sacrifices and the priests were accepting them and just going through the motions and, and completely neglect. It was disgraceful. It was, an, it was apathy. It was disregard that went from the bottom to the top, the top to the bottom. It was just all encompassing apathy when it came to the worship of the people of God. This is not what God desired for his people. He wants more than for his people to go through religious motions in his name. Our, our God cares about our worship. Now, through the window, we can look at this and say, well, those boneheads, they knew what they were supposed to do, and they were bringing broken sacrifices. How dare they? Good thing. We would never do something like that. But if we're honest, as we look at it as a mirror, it's not why weren't you guys taking your worship seriously. It becomes why are we not taking our worship seriously? It it's not religious leaders, How, why were you letting this happen? It is, why are we, are we, why are we letting this happen? How are we accepting and participating in this? And you might hear this and think, Pastor, but we're not offering animals. We're not doing this, right? Um, how could you say this? I need you to hear me. I'm going to say this probably three or four times this morning, but God is, is not as much concerned with the condition of the animals that are being offered as he is with the condition of the heart of his people who are doing, doing the offering. Let me say this again. God is not as much concerned with the condition of these animals as he is the condition of the hearts of his people who are bringing these animals. To that he is concerned. To that he is concerned. Religion in this context, we just get this sense that it become this ritual. It was apathetic and well, pathetic as well. But this is what we see. The problem was the hearts of the people. They, they, okay, I'm going to push this a little bit. It wasn't that they didn't believe in God. That they didn't believe in Yahweh. If they didn't believe in Yahweh, they just wouldn't have come to the temple. Okay? It wasn't that. Um, it was that they didn't care. 
it was that there was apathy. It was that there was, there was this ritual going through the motions. And this church is where we start to see ourselves in the mirror. This is where we start to see ourselves in the mirror. For so long, we have been so used to seeing this that we even have a name for it. We've labeled this phenomenon here in America. We call it nominal Christianity or cultural Christianity, whatever we want to call it. And this is referring to the many people who claim that they are Christian, claim that they're Christian. Uh, They come to church occasionally. They will identify as Christian on a survey when given a list of other options. Yet who have no other evidence of Christ moving or working or residing in them. They have no other evidence. In fact, they look just like the world. They value what the world values, and they staple Jesus to the end of that sucker. We even have a name for it. And not only that, I'm going to push it more and hurt a little bit. We have churches that are built on this. We have churches that are built on this, that, that have been built on cultural values. Look just like the world, smell just like the world, Value what the world values, staple Jesus. Just like the people of Israel. Hear me, it's not that we no longer just, we don't believe in Jesus. For some, that is the case. But by and large, um, by the way, if that were the case, we wouldn't identify with Christian when given a list of other options. Um, But like the children of Israel, the, the real problem is a heart problem because religion has become largely ritual or going through the the motions. It's just that we don't care all that much. We just don't care all that much. We're called to more than this, by the way. I can't spend a lot of time with this here because I'm coming back. But Paul says it so clearly in Romans 12 when, when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul is very clear. Paul is very clear. So what we see so far, God loves us perfectly, and, and God's been perfectly faithful And we have loved him imperfectly, and we have been unfaithful. Let's move deeper. Let's get into chapter 2. Here, um, we are going to see the Word of God call out, kind of narrow down from, from, from temple to home. Temple to family. So we're going to look at um, specifically, he's going to target some men here of Israel. And we're going to look at two things, idolatry and divorce. Idolatry and divorce. So, so here's what was happening. Um, the men here, let's start with idolatry because that's where the text starts. The men here were deciding to, to meet some women. They liked what they saw. And they pursued these women who were not followers of Yahweh at all. In fact, they were then introducing these men to the foreign gods of the people that they came from. Okay. So what was happening is these men were choosing women over and marrying these women, and in doing so, they began to worship these foreign gods, which, by the way, just shows priorities, does it not? Just shows priorities. These men were not first and foremost followers of God, believers and worshipers of Yahweh. No, these men put aside all that, 
cultural stuff, to go after the women that they happen to really like. Priorities shift here. Now, through the, wind, through the window, we look at this and we say these men were boneheads. Again, my word of the morning. Yet through the mirror, we are reminded of all the things that we can place before our God. We're reminded of all the ways that we choose to find our identity outside of Christ. And it gets a little bit more uncomfortable when we start to see the ways we do this and then staple Jesus to the end of everything. More than that, God is also here going to call out these men and, and divorce here. So here's what was happening, something very similar. These men were leaving their wives, leaving their families, leaving the covenants that they had made in order to, again, chase these, these crazy women of the time. I don't know if they're crazy, but they weren't followers of Yahweh. We know that, okay? And so they were... They were Again, highlighting their priorities. Was this not? Highlighting their priorities. See, their top priority was not honoring God, was not keeping their covenant, loving each other, representing God well to the world. That wasn't it. Their top priority was what can I get for me? It was a pursuit of pleasure. I want to read this to you. So, so it says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears. With weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Why doesn't he accept it? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one, a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? Godly offspring, so guard yourself in spirit, in your spirit, and let none of your faithless, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Your God cares about what you do. He cares about your worship, and here he drives this down even closer to care about the home and about the covenant that keeps that home together. The reality is God is much, God doesn't just want you to come in here once a week and have a, a worship experience. God doesn't want you to log in once a week and have a worship experience. God is after something more. He's after you. He's after your heart, all of it. He wants what happens here to be an overflow of all of, of that. But let's go deeper. Look with me at verse 17 of, of chapter two, by the way. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Love this dialogue here. By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or by asking where is the God of justice? Okay, do you see what just happened here? Do you see the accusation made here? The people, the same people, by the way, who were not taking God seriously, 
The same people, by the way, who were offering these broken animals in in sacrifices. The same people, by the way, who were giving themselves to foreign gods. The same people who were chasing foreign women. The same people are now turning and looking to God, shaking their fists at God and saying, you're not doing a good job up there. Look at all this injustice. Look at all this brokenness around us. Where are you, God? Where is the God of justice? How bold is that? Again, through the window, we look at this and we just say, wow, that's arrogance. You're, you're a bonehead. Like, what, what is that? What, why would you accuse God when you are ignoring him? Like, we, we see it from this vantage point, right? Yet in the mirror, is this not exactly what we do? Exactly what we do. We, we run from our God. We turn our ear away from his word. And when things don't go the way we think we should, when, when things around us don't make sense, what do we do? The, so often, we are quick to blame. And we are quick to kind of accuse and to shake our fists up at the Lord and say, why have you done this? In church, what we need to be doing, by the way, coming back to this, repent. That's what we need to be doing. But instead, we shake our fists up at the Lord. In fact, we see, by the way, we see these kind of prayers all throughout Psalm, the the kind of prayers that, um, where are you? Have you forgotten me prayers? You've seen those prayers all throughout the Psalms. I want you to know, our God can handle your prayers. Our God can handle honest prayers of where are you, God? That's different than what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here is not an honest prayer of where are you, God, that comes from a real relationship with our God. That's not what we're seeing here. What we are seeing here is an accusation thrown against our God while living in complete sin, disobedience, and treating him like he doesn't matter. That's a different story. That's a different story. They ask, where is the God of justice? And our, our God responds by saying, judgment day is coming. Justice is, in fact, coming. I've said this before, but it's easier to look at situations and look at people and, and cry out for justice for that guy. Like, God, get him. And to cry out for mercy for me. That's not what God does here. What God does here is he turns on the people and he says, examine yourself. Examine Repent before you shake your fists. So let's take it deeper. Um, As we move into this next part, church, it's not a detour, I promise you. I'm not detouring. I might get a little heated about this one because this one bothers me a little bit, okay? Um, This is really important. In fact, if you have heard Malachi preached at some point in your life, chances are you have heard this next section preached from Malachi. Um, I don't want to say this lightly. This section is one of the single most abused scriptures in all of the Bible, especially over the last hundred years. It's the single most abused and the single most misused scripture that I can think of in the last hundred years in the church. 
So I don't speak lightly of this, specifically by, by those prosperity gospel preachers or word of faith movement. This has been a text that has been abused. And as a church being faithful to the word, we need to address this. Let's read this. Um, it says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Uh, this is verse six. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. But you say, how shall, how shall we return? Will you rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you're gonna say, you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the window, windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord. And pause there. From this, we may hear something that sounds a little bit like this. Make sure that you pay your tithes Make sure that you give your offerings because it's the gateway of blessing. This is the way God's gonna pour out blessing on you. God actually tells us to put him to the test. God's inviting us to put him to the test. When we give our tithes, we will be blessed like a cosmic divine ATM. So if you want to be blessed financially, then put God to the test, give your tithes, and he will bless you. Simple as that. He will pour out the storehouses of heaven for you. Okay. I, I want to be really clear here. This message, that message, that approach to this text is an abuse of scripture. A blatant abuse of scripture. Um, and if any pastor or Christian leader tells you that the, the way for you to get your blessing is to give them money, run. Run from that. That's abuse in the name of Jesus. Don't, don't, run. If a pastor tells you that the gateway to your blessing is to give them money, run. The gateway to blessing is Christ alone, not giving to their ministry. Here's the deal. This interpretation of this scripture misrepresents this scripture and actually takes it quite a bit out of context here. Um, God is not a means to any other end for you. So let that settle. He's not your ticket to get healthy. He's not your ticket to get wealthy. When he loves you, it doesn't mean you're rich. When you're poor, it doesn't mean that he, he despises you. It's the height of arrogance, church. And, I, and it's the height of idolatry in my view. 
the absolute height of idolatry, to worship money and then to find a way to use Jesus to get to your true God of money. It's the height of idolatry to to use God to pursue any other thing or any other God. In the context of this scripture, here's what was happening. The people of God were ignoring, they they were ignoring the command of God for the tithe in the temple. They were ignoring the sacrifice commands in the temple. And in this context, as we've said, their worship was corrupt. They were bringing broken down animals. They were withholding their tithes. And this was a call that God was giving them to repent. Repent of your stingy heart. Repent. Bring the blameless sacrifice. Bring the tithe into the storehouse. Trust Yahweh. That was the call. That was the call here. I'm going to go back to this again. Our God is ultimately concerned about the condition of the hearts of his people. And here, the hearts of his people were corrupt. He was calling this out. The prosperity gospel church is a false gospel that seeks to move our God from his position as one true God deserving of all worship and to make him, try to make him a means to another end, a means to wealth, a means to health. In other words, the prosperity gospel has another God at its center. Calls us to worship God's things instead of God himself. And the true gospel says there is no God before him. The true gospel says there is no greater joy or pleasure than knowing him. You can be poor and destitute and have Jesus and have everything. And you can be wealthy beyond all comprehension and be miserable. Okay. What is this text getting at here then? Um, Here's the reason I get so bothered by this, by the prosperity gospel's take on this, is because I believe that it actually preaches the opposite of what this text is actually preaching and teaching. See, the people's hearts, they were already given to idolatry. The people's hearts um, were already given, and and Scripture was, was calling their idols out, calling them to give up their idols, bring it, lay it down, that Yahweh was better. Why hoard your 10% when God is better? Why pursue and hoard all of God's stuff when God himself is so much better? That's what this text is getting them to. Stinginess here. Yet, you know, through the window, we, we look at them and we think, how could they do this? Again, my word, they're boneheads, they missed it. Yet through the mirror, we begin to see all the ways that we can use God to other ends. That we use our God to get other things. And here's something that we all need to hear. Jesus's grand objective is not to make you happy, healthy, or wealthy. Don't hear me wrong. He's not out to make you miserable. In fact, that's the point. <laughs> he's, he's, it's almost like a dad. We have kids in the room. It's almost like a dad who just like 
loves just only feeding his kids junk food and candy all the time because it's awesome. That's not a loving father. That's not a loving father. See, see, our, our, Jesus is, is after so much more than just your momentary fleeting pleasure. He's after you. He's after you. His desire for you in this text, his desire for the people of God is for the people to turn their hearts from the lesser things and to worship the one true God. That's what he's after here. So how dare us use this text to put another God in front of his place? It's the exact opposite of what this text is after. There's a song that we sing, and, and I love it. It's called Jesus is Better. Um, I asked if we could close with it today, but I love the honesty of the lyrics because it starts by saying, in every sorrow, Jesus is better, make my heart believe. We've all prayed that. It doesn't stop there because then it says, in every victory, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. More than any comfort, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. More than all riches, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Jesus is not the means to anything else. He's everything. He's, he's, he's everything. And the cry of our hearts must be make our hearts believe. Make our hearts believe. Through Malachi, we've seen a people doubting the love of God, doubting the justice of God. We've seen a people withholding their tithes, bringing sickly, blemished sacrifices in. We've seen a people running to foreign gods and foreign ladies. Um, we, we've seen them just pursuing their own ends. And we're gonna finish this morning with the reminder that Malachi finishes his book with, and that's this, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Chapter four, it, it starts with the wicked. It says, behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven when all arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, um, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so it will be, or so it will leave them neither root nor branch. But the day of the Lord and day of, will not be a day of destruction for those who are, whose faith is in God. I want you to listen to this. But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I've never seen that, but it sounds awesome. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And, remember, and listen to this, listen to God's instruction here. Remember the law of my servant Moses and statutes and rules that I have commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. The day of the Lord is coming, and until we get there, while you wait, wait and remember. Remember. So after Malachi, there's going to be no more prophets for four to five hundred more years. It's going to go.